story. Um, so the nation of Israel is once again in exile. Jerusalem has been taken over by the Babylonian in- Empire, um, and the Jews are now scattered all over this area that's under Persian rule, and they're surrounded by people that don't really um, like them there. King Ahasuerus decides he wants to get a new queen, and so he summons all of the eligible bachelorettes, and they do in fact have a year-long makeover session for real. Uh, which is crazy, and then they are presented before the king. He chooses, without realizing that Esther is Jewish, he picks her. And Mordecai, um, who is her cousin, who has cared for her because she is an orphan, um, he tells her, like, let's not tell the king that you're Jewish just yet. So she does not, and he does not realize it. Mordecai, meanwhile, likes to hang out at the city gate, so he can kind of, like, keep tabs on how Esther is doing, and while he's there, he overhears the guards say they have this plot to kill the king. So Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, the king's life is saved, yay, everything's really, really good, until one day the king decides to appoint Haman, um, who does a lot of very evil things, to be his like top official, right? Haman, um, because in, of his position, is expected uh, expects people to bow down to him. But Mordecai will not bow down to him, and so that immediately makes Haman very, very angry, and he decides he wants to destroy not just Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, which are the Jews. So he goes to the king, he says, there is this group of rogue people that are not following your laws, and they need to be terminated. The king does not realize he's talking about the Jews, he just thinks it's this rogue group. So he says, okay, Haman, you are in charge, you have my blessing to manage this situation however you see fit. So, Haman decides he's going to draft up this letter. He sends it to all the provinces in the area that the king is over, and it says um, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is a date he literally came up with by like casting lots, like rolling dice, just kind of a game of fun, you know? And he picks this day, and he says, on this day, every Persian person is to kill every Jewish person. So it's like genocide, mass extinction going to happen on this date that happens to be about 10 months after this letter is actually sent out, which is kind of strange. But he sends this letter out. It creates mass confusion. The Jews immediately go into mourning. Um, Mordecai is doing this, and he's doing this at the city gate. So Esther finds out that he's dressed in sackcloth at the gate, so she sends clothes for him, not sure what is going on. He then informs her what has happened with this letter, what is going on with this plan of genocide, And she says, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And he says, well, you have to do something because you are in this position of power. And she says, but it's not that simple because I can't just go to the king at any point that I want to go to the king. You know, they kill you for things like that, even though I'm the queen, which is crazy. But that's how it was. But if she didn't go, she would die. If she did go, she might die. So Mordecai says, look, you are in this position for such a time as this right? Like the first ever motivational speaker. And she ends up like falling into this huge existential crisis and deciding, okay, fine, like I'm going to go talk to him. So she goes and talks to him. He does not cut her head off. He's actually very happy to see her. And he says, Queen Esther, I will give you anything your heart desires as much as half of my kingdom. And she says, oh, great. Um, how about a banquet? 
And so they go to a banquet the next day with the king and Haman. Haman is super thrilled to get to go to a banquet with the king and queen, that feels like. He's really hot stuff. So they have this banquet. And the king again says to the queen, knowing there's probably something else going on, he says, so tell me what is your request. I will give you anything up to half of my kingdom. And she sits there and she's nervous, presumably, that's not the text, but we're going to make that assumption. And she says, well, how about another banquet? And so the next day they plan to have another banquet. So that night, after the first banquet, they all leave. Haman exits, and he passes through the city gate. He sees Mordecai, and he is reminded of his deep hate for Mordecai specifically. So he goes home and, emboldened by his family, decides, I'm going to go to the king in the morning and just say, look, Mordecai's got to go, like, now. Well, that night, the king could not sleep. And so, like you do, he gets up and he opens the big book of kingdom records and decides to read it. And as he's reading it, he comes upon that time way back when, when the queen saved his life because the the guards at the gate wanted to kill him. And he um, reads in this record that actually Mordecai was the one that gave the information to Esther because somebody in the kingdom is keeping track of these things. And so he finds this information out. He's overjoyed. Oh, my goodness, Mordecai, I must honor him. So the next morning when Haman shows up, before Haman can say anything, the king says, okay, I need to know, what should I do for a man that I wish to honor? And of course, Haman's like, oh, well, let me tell you, because he thinks it's about him. He says, well, you should put ropes on him, and you should give him your horse, and he should walk through the city square, and you should put a crown on his head, and you should have someone going behind him proclaiming, this man is honored by the king. And the king says, that's a fantastic idea. So I need you to carry that out for Mordecai the Jew. So it's this beautiful, like, hilarious situation where the man that he came to say, this guy's got to go, he now is literally walking around the square with this guy saying, this man is honored by the Jew. Like, he is the one proclaiming it. It's, it's a beautiful, ironic story. So later that very same day, Haman gets to go to this banquet with the king and the queen, where the queen does muster up enough courage to tell him what has happened with this letter. She says she is Jewish. These are her people. She will die. They will die. It is wrong. And the king is outraged because he didn't realize that Haman was trying to mass extinct all of the Jewish people, right? And so he he goes and he, like, leaves into the garden to, like, collect himself. And then he comes back into Haman and he says, look... The harm that you have planned against Mordecai, this harm is now going to come to you. And he literally goes from there and is hung on the gallows that that Haman personally built to hang Mordecai on. So again, the irony comes full circle, and it's, it's really interesting how that happens. The end of the story, which we did not let the children enact, is that on the 13th day of the 12th month, the day that all the Jews were supposed to be killed, instead of them being killed... They all came together, and they killed every Persian that they considered their enemy. Um, The text says over 75,000 Persians were killed. And then the next day, um, there's the Feast of Purim that begins, and it's a day of feasting and joyous celebration and giving gifts to the poor. And and today, the the Festival of Purim is still celebrated, and people dress up in disguise, kind of like the way that Esther was in disguise. So there's the whole story. Did I leave anything out? Okay. But the good news is I am not preaching on every bit of that. So um, Caleb is going to come up, and he's going to read the specific text from that story that we're going to look a little bit closer at. No, 
Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went through the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a message from Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come, to come into the king for thirty days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Caleb. The, uh, the really interesting thing about the book of Esther is that the book itself is about as much of an imposter as Esther is. The book is actually the only book in the entire Bible that does not mention God, not even once. Um, it is considered a historical novel, which um, by many, which means that it was probably inspired by historical events, but not necessarily a historical telling of those events. Um, it is the only book that does not meet the requirements given by the various councils that work to put together the canon, um, and somehow it is still in the canon. And the reason for that is because of the Festival of Purim. This festival is one of the main seven festivals for the Jewish people. They did not meet every single week like we do. It was seven times a year at these festivals. So if you throw out um, Esther, you throw out the festival, now we're down to six festivals, and you cannot have six. You must have seven. That's another whole long thing. So um, it was a really big deal. And um, so there you go. So I shared with you my imposter story about how I am not a musician. 
And uh, unfortunately, that is not the only time in my life that I have felt like an imposter. There have been many subsequent times. Um, most, uh, well, not most recently. Oh dear, my child is six years old. But when Kyra was born, I do remember feeling this way, kind of like, here I am with this child. I have to convince everyone that I know what I'm doing here because this is a human being, you know. But inside, I'm like, how am I going to keep her alive? How am I going to not break her, you know? But on the outside, I was like, you know, beaming mother, you know, as you do. Um, and, you know, I think that that imposter feeling, I think it happens a lot when, uh, when you're in a leadership role or when you are doing something new. I think it's really easy to feel like an imposter when you are the youngest or when you are the oldest, um, when you are in the minority or when you mess up. When I first stepped into a pastoral role, I was 20 years old. I was a youth pastor. So I was literally responsible for people's children that were some of them three years younger than me. Like I was driving church buses and, and their lives were in my hands. And I was terrified of nothing more than that the church people would figure out that I was 20 because they did not put that in the bulletin, thankfully. So I was trying to avoid this information from leaking out and I was avoiding it like millennials avoid phone calls. It was just the worst thing I could imagine that they would figure this out. And then they would be like, oh, well, she, you know, she's an imposter. I felt like an imposter. They gave me the keys to the kingdom before they realized who it was that they'd given them to. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you had to put on something to be something, but under that disguise that you don't measure up? Esther's story takes it to the next level, because if her disguise comes off, then her head may also. And what could make matters worse, <laughs> I know it's a good joke, right? <laughs> Sometimes I write those in. Um, <laughs> To make matters worse, she has this cousin, Mordecai, that's giving her this speech about for such a time as this. And, and of course, that does nothing more than just launch her into that existential crisis. And so she is put in the situation of having to decide whether to leave on the disguise and die or take the disguise off and die. But there's something here that is happening that is really, really important. What is hidden is being revealed. The one who is exalted is being brought low, and the one who is low is being lifted up. It is the ever-repeated story of God saying, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cries. I know their suffering, and I am coming. Now you go. And here we are, in Advent, reading the story of Esther. And of anyone to save the Jewish people, no one would have anticipated that it would be a woman who is young, who is a Jew, who is also a Persian queen. Kind of crazy that that happened. And who would have expected that when God chose to come down among us, it would be in this form of a helpless baby that was birthed by a young, unwed refugee woman in a barn in a small, insignificant, and even despised town. God. This is how God came in the most unexpected way. 
And if you weren't paying attention, then you might have even missed it. What we're doing this season of Advent is we are waiting. We are waiting for the hidden things to be revealed. And my kids get really confused about this every single year because they're they're like, why are we waiting for baby Jesus to be born when baby Jesus was already born? And it is confusing, right? Because we're like stepping back into that waiting feeling that the world felt before Jesus was actually born. But then we're also like noticing our present real experience of waiting for Jesus to come again when all of this suffering and injustice will be no more, right? So we're kind of in that tension between those two things. But then we're also experiencing this other tension that we talk about a lot because it literally impacts absolutely everything that we do. It's this tension between this living in this world, but living as if we are part of this other different kingdom. And they always butt heads. It always clashes. And it's the part of the story where God says, I am coming, now you go, when we live into this other kingdom. There's a different set of rules. There's different values in the kingdom of heaven. They give life, and they restore life. And in the kingdom of heaven, the story of Esther actually might have ended differently. It might not have ended with those who were oppressed now becoming the oppressors. And how do we consider justice for the oppressor when we realize that we ourselves are also the oppressor? There's a lot of wondering still, because we don't yet fully live in this kingdom. So at the same time that we are living into it, we are also waiting for it. If you were to look at the story of Esther and you were to take from it one thing about waiting, it would be that waiting is not inactive. It is not a time for us to just zone out, right? So I had just moved to Ohio and um, my family was living in Chattanooga, so that's quite a big span of time. I was like a year out of college or so. And one day my mom says, hey, I'll pay for you a plane ticket if you want to come visit us. And I was like, yeah, totally. So I hop on a plane. I have a layover in Memphis and small world. I run into a family friend um, of my parents in Memphis. And he's been on a business trip, and he also has a layover in Memphis to get back to Chattanooga. And we talk for a minute, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go, like, you know, get something to eat, you know, before we board and everything. He's like, okay, and so we split ways. And um, this was early in my flying experience, so I had not flown a lot. I really had not flown a lot by myself. And so uh, when I looked at my ticket, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we don't, like, the flight doesn't leave for, like, 30 minutes, so I'm totally good. I'm going to go get something to eat. <laughs> so I do. So I go to this little restaurant, and I get it to go, and then I, I kind of look around, and I'm like, well, time to kill so I'm just gonna sit down and eat so I sit down and I eat my food and then I'm like yeah you know I probably should go to the bathroom and go to the bathroom and I'm like oh I really like to take a drink on the plane because their drinks are like horrible and so I go and I get a drink and and I look at my watch and I'm like okay well it's like 10 minutes till the flight leaves so I think I'll go for the plane now it's not too long to have to wait on the plane far superior to wait in an airport than on an airplane so um so I go and I get delayed my ticket no big deal 
Um, I walked through the door and they like closed the door behind me. So I was like, oh, sweet, you know, like perfect timing. So I walk onto the plane and I sit down in my seat. And, and actually my family friend is like two rows behind me. So I kind of you know, wave at him and I break open my book and I just enjoy this incredible flight. And I remember this experience thinking multiple times, like, this is so nice. Like, I just get to enjoy this time. Like, I'm an extrovert, but there was something about this that was just really, really fun. So I get on this plane, I land, I go see my parents. I'm there like a day and a half, and this family friend comes and visits my family, and he begins telling the story of my flight in a way that I do not remember it. <laughs> he says, so I run into Chelsea at the gate, and like they're about to start boarding, and she's like, I'm going to go get dinner. <laughs> and so... He, but he like didn't say anything. He just let me go. So he's like, he he says he gets on the plane and he's sitting in his seat and like everyone is boarding and they're like getting ready to go and he's like, I haven't seen Chelsea get on the plane yet. And according to him, they made two announcements on the intercom with my name and a final boarding call. And according to him, he grabbed a stewardess and was like, look. This girl, she's a family friend. Like, I just saw her. I know she's here. And the stewardess says, well, she's got 30 seconds. And apparently, this was the moment that I turned the corner and start, in his words, bebopping down the aisle <laughs> to my seat where I sit down and am just blissfully unaware that anyone was at all inconvenienced by my enjoyment of waiting. I actually really enjoy waiting. If you were in my group last week, we talked about if you like waiting or not. I kind of like waiting. I enjoy it. Um, and I, I enjoy the opportunity to kind of like zone out, you know, and just feel like I have nothing to worry about. This happened to me recently where I decided to go to coffee with someone and turn my phone upside down. And four hours or five hours later, my husband thinks I'm dead, you know. So, like, but that wasn't a waiting situation, so it's not as good of an example. But, you know, zoning out is something that I, that I may frequently do. Uh, waiting is not inactive. It's actually really, really important. So it's it's equally important that we don't zone out when we are waiting, given the story. It is also equally important that we do not fill our waiting with busyness, because that time is intentional and it's meaning-filled. Sometimes I wait zoning out. Sometimes I wait like other people where I have five minutes, so I'm like, okay, can I get some emails sent? Or I need to call this person back. Or... Like, I haven't been on Facebook in five days. What is happening in the world? You know, or sometimes um, I do what some people do when they're waiting, and I just mindlessly scroll, you know, through social media. So whether it's zoning out, whether it's filling it with busyness, whether it's zoning it out and filling it with social, social media, whatever we're filling it with is really, really important. When we wait for hope and light, and peace and joy, when we're waiting for answers or direction or healing or relationships to mend or ends to meet, our waiting is not empty. Something is moving and stirring in our hearts, even in that very experience where it feels like we're stuck and we cannot move forward. We are watching, we are preparing, 
And we are anticipating that God is arriving to meet us in our trouble. If something is wrong or unjust, we don't just sit back waiting for the world to change. We wonder over what way God may have. We wonder over how God may have brought us into this moment. To such a place as this. To such a relationship as this. To such a problem as this. To such a decision as this. In such a struggle as this. In such a time as this. I don't know if you've ever read the Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. If you have graduated high school, I'm sure you own a copy. <laughs> but there is a page in this book that talks about how you get to this place called the waiting room. You guys remember this page? Yeah? And in the waiting room, it's like this room full of people who are just waiting. And I was going to bring the book, but my children have lost my copy from when I graduated high school. But in this book, on this page, it gives this whole list of things these people are waiting for. It's like they're waiting for the phone to ring, and they're waiting for this opportunity or this door to open. And they're just, they're like waiting in a way that they are frozen and stuck. And it's like they can't move until this thing happens, so they're stuck waiting. But that's not the kind of waiting that we're talking about. And this is not also a motivational speech. This is not a for such a time as this, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go make it happen kind of situation. This is the story of God that's reminding us that God sees and God hears and God knows and God is coming and God is sending. And it reminds us that God is often arriving in unexpected ways. It's reminding us that we need to wait and we also need to act. You may feel like an imposter, but you are intentional. You are actually a part of a story of God filled with people that have felt that way. And when we realize that we can't do it, it creates the space so that God can. Wrapping up, another interesting um, point in this story that ties in a lot to something that Emily said earlier about peace. Um, it's just the way that Esther seems so uncomfortable with Mordecai's grieving. You know, he's down there at the city gate. He's got sackcloth and ashes. And, and I was thinking about Caleb's sermon last week when he talked about lament and how uncomfortable that is. And Esther looks at Mordecai, and she kind of does the same thing that we all do when we come up against grief and lament. We're like, get up and put some clothes on, you know? It makes us uncomfortable. It kind of disrupts the peace. Waiting, grieving, lamenting, hoping. These experiences that sometimes feel like they just put life on hold and pull you away from the thing that you really need to be doing, they may actually be the thing that you really need to be doing. That's God, I thank you for this story that feels like it, it takes different forms, but it's on repeat. It's consistent. 
it's echoing in these different lives and these different stories, and it echoes in our own lives and in our own stories. I thank you for the way that we are surrounded by people throughout all of history that have this shared experience. We have all experienced pain. We have suffered. We have watched injustices around us. We've felt helpless. We have been afraid and nervous. We've been up against decisions that we don't know how to make. We've been asked to do things we don't feel like we have the resources to do. And God, in the midst of that, you say that you see and you hear and you know and you're coming and then you send us. And God, I pray that you, you will meet us where we are and that you will remind us of your presence. I pray that you will give us eyes to see you in the unexpected places and that you will fill our hearts with light and with hope. God, help us to receive your peace. God, I pray for every person who is in painful waiting, where the anticipation of what is to come brings sorrow and fear. God, I pray that you'll be close with them. I pray that you'll give them your comfort and that you will send your people to love them in their waiting. God, remind us of our work as we wait. Give us the courage of Esther and the commitment of Mordecai. God, for every person that feels like an imposter, I pray that you would remind them that you go with them and you fill them and you have created them for important work. And that just as you said to Isaiah, you will take hold of their hand and you say, do not fear, I will help you. God, I thank you for your love. I thank you for the way that you redeem all things. I thank you for who you are. God, we love you and we need you. Come, come, come.